Are you familiar with the phrase, but wait, there's more? The infomercial and telemarketing personalities of Ron Popeil and then later Billy Mays popularized this phrase when they were selling gadgets on television. And since then, it has made its way throughout our culture. But they would present some gadget that they promised would change your life in some important way, showing you a number of amazing features. And then just when you thought they could say no more about it, they would say, but wait, there's more. And then they would show you several more amazing features. And then they would say again, but wait, there's more. And then they would show you several more amazing features. And by the time they were done, your head was about to explode from all of the incredible things that this gadget could do for you. And then they would hit you with the amazing price of just three easy payments of $19.95 or whatever else it was. And then they would say, but wait, there's more. Because you get not one, but two of these gadgets for that price. Well, having no intention of associating the Apostle Paul with these slick salesmen, the passage we will be looking at today in the letter of Romans actually lends itself to this phrase. But wait, there's more. Paul has already presented the amazing truth that we are saved by faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us. And now it is as if Paul says, but wait, there's more. Quick review to catch us up to where we're at today. In the Bible, it's important that we understand that the word justification is not used in the way that we usually use justification in day-to-day conversation with each other. Justification refers to our being accepted by God as not guilty because of our sins not being counted against us. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 320, Paul explains how every human being is guilty before God, judged and condemned, and unable to change that situation on our own. We are not able to justify ourselves before God through the keeping of the Jewish law or following any other kind of system of good deeds or religious ritual. But God has not left us to that hopeless fate. Paul explains in the next passage, Romans 3, 21 through 31, that God gives us his righteousness, justifying us, giving us salvation when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, believing that Jesus was put to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification, as it says in Romans 4, 25. And then in Romans chapter 4, which we looked at last time, Paul uses the example of Abraham to show us that God has always justified people through faith rather than through following the law or doing some other kind of good deed. In this chapter, Paul tells us because justification is a gift, it can't be earned by doing good deeds. He tells us, Abraham was justified before he was 
or before he was circumcised. So circumcision has no relationship to justification. Abraham was justified centuries before the law was given, so justification is not based on the law. Abraham was justified because of his faith in God and his promises. Romans 4.3 says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, now, in the first verses of Romans chapter 5, which is what we'll be looking at today, Paul tells us about the awesome consequences that come from our justification, the fruit that comes from our justification, the things we enjoy because of our justification. So turn to Romans chapter 5, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. He begins with the word, therefore, referring to what Paul has written in the previous verses. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, this is the big idea of the first four chapters of Romans, that we have been justified by faith rather than by following the law or some other kind of system of good deeds or religious rituals of some kind. Having faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us is credited as righteousness. This is the source of our justification. This is the source of our salvation. And then as I said a moment ago, after laying this theological foundation for our justification by faith, Paul now tells us about things that we enjoy because of our justification, the benefits of our justification. It's a bit like Paul is using that old infomercial phrase. But wait, there's more. He mentions three of these in these two verses. The first is, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the peace being talked about here is not the peace of God, which calms and satisfies our heart in the midst of troubles and pressures. That is certainly a peace that the Holy Spirit gives to believers, but that's not the peace being talked about here. The peace being talked about here is the peace is peace with God. It is the state of peace that occurs when this conflict and division between us and God because of our sin has been removed. We are now on good terms with God. You'll remember from Romans chapter 1, 18 through 320, that before we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ, we are under the judgment and the condemnation of God. We are at war with God in a sense. We are on opposite sides, opposing one another. But with our justification, which God gives to us, comes peace with Him. All of the hostilities are removed. We are no longer under condemnation. We are brought over to God's side. We are on friendly terms. And we're not just brought over to God's side, but we're actually adopted as his children. In Romans 8.15, it says, The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. 
Rightly is Jesus called the Prince of Peace. He has made peace with God possible for us. Well, the second benefit that comes with our justification is we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Our justification has not just changed our relationship with God from one of hostility and condemnation to one of peace between us, but it has created a relationship of grace. We stand in grace our relationship with God is one of privileged position as His children, grounded in His unquenchable love for us. Our relationship with God is not unpredictable, sometimes hot, sometimes cold, based on His mood or some kind of scorekeeping, like we often find in human relationships. Our relationship with God is secure and it's steady. It doesn't change. It's a relationship we are standing in. And our relationship with God is always one that is characterized by and anchored in His grace. Always. The third benefit that comes with our justification is that we boast in the hope of the glory of God. The word translated into English as boast means to express an unusually high degree of confidence in someone or something being exceptionally noteworthy. Now, boasting is something that people often do about themselves. But as a believer, we boast in the Lord what He has done for us, what He is doing for us, and what He is going to do for us. Boasting. We have an unusually high degree of confidence in the Lord being exceptionally awesome. That's what it means to boast in Him. Specifically, here in this verse, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. A, a measure of God's glory has always been revealed to all people through the creation. You might remember in Romans 1.20, it says that His eternal power and divine nature being clearly seen and understood by all people is a manifestation of His glory. But people as a whole we learned in chapter 1, 2, and 3, have chosen to exchange the glory of the immortal God for images and imitations of God that we have made for ourselves. Therefore, God gave them over, gave us over to these inferior things with which we have degraded ourselves with. But those who receive God's wonderful gift of justification by faith are given the blessing of seeing and experiencing the restoration of God's glory and the full revealing of it. That terrible exchange that we made, trading the glory of God for lesser, inferior, pathetic, awful, sinful things, will be undone. We will receive in full measure the glory of God and see His glory fill all things in the earth and the heavens. We're hoping in, looking forward to with confident expectation, that's what hoping means, the full revealing of the glory of God that's coming. So these three benefits that come with our justification, they relate to our past, present, and our future. In Jesus Christ, we have been freed from our past, we have been forgiven, we now have peace with God, we now enjoy a relationship with God as our Father, which is of grace, 
And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, our future inheritance that's coming. Well, verse 3 says, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So he says, not only so, it's as if, Paul says again, but wait, there's more. So not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Not only do we have these benefits already mentioned that come with our justification, but we even glory in, we rejoice in our sufferings. Everything about our life is profoundly changed in character and substance, including our sorrows and difficulties. Even they are a blessing and benefit to us now. In what way? Are our sufferings something we can glory in, that we can rejoice in? He says, because we know that our suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. Our sufferings produce good in us. There is good purpose in them. There isn't joy in the actual suffering itself. It isn't enjoyable to go through pain and trouble. We're not being told to find pleasure in the suffering itself, but for a Christian, a believer, a follower of Jesus, our suffering has beneficial results. We don't just face our sufferings like a stoic, gritting our teeth and burying it. Instead, we look through our suffering to the certainties on the other side of it. In the life of a person who is justified by faith in Jesus Christ, who receives salvation, as a gift from God, as an act of His grace, suffering sets off a chain reaction of sorts. It says suffering grows perseverance. Well, perseverance is the ability to bear up under difficulty. It is endurance. To develop endurance or perseverance, we need to be challenged. Our limits need to be pushed. If I want to increase my endurance as a runner, I need to run more and run Further, I need to press against my limits in order for my limits to increase. Well, suffering does the same kind of thing in our life. It presses against our limits as a person, causing our perseverance to increase. Perseverance grows character. Character is the aggregation of good character traits. It has to do with our trustworthiness, our reliability, our soundness, our moral strength, our maturity. To develop our character, we need to be challenged too. Our limits need to be pushed in the same way. Suffering grows our perseverance, which grows our character because we are pressed to have more character, more maturity. The application of heat causes the impurities to be separated out and the junk to be burned away. What's left is an increasingly refined character. I don't like it while I'm going through it, but over the course of my life, 
the times that have produced the most refining of my character have been times of suffering and loss and pain. And the times when I have made the least amount of progress have been times of abundance and leisure. We say about our circumstances, it's hard, it's difficult, I don't like this. Yes, it is hard and difficult, but that difficulty is growing us and we can rejoice in that. It says character grows hope. So suffering, it, it removes false and inferior sources of hope from our life and it grows our confidence in our true source of hope, God. As we see God prove himself faithful again and again through our sufferings, with our perseverance increasing and our character being increasingly refined and matured, our hope grows. We become more and more confident that what God has promised for our future will indeed happen. I've witnessed this kind of incredible hope most clearly in the lives of dear brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing the nearness of their death. They are so peaceful and confident in the Lord. Most of us who are believers can say that we know we're going to be with the Lord when we die. We're going to heaven and being with him. But these dear saints at the end of their life, just moments away from their death, have a hope and a confidence that is next level in comparison. It is a powerful and challenging thing to be in the presence of. Their suffering has produced a profound hope. I've also witnessed the fear and the uncertainty in a person who is facing death under the burden of carrying their own justification before God on their own shoulders hoping that they have been good enough to merit entrance into God's good presence and future. There is little hope in that person. Their suffering has not produced hope. They're not a confident, expectant, looking forward to God's promises in them because they have never embraced those promises with faith. Verse 5, he says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope does not put us to shame. The way that the NIV uh, Bible has chosen to translate the Greek here can make what's said confusing because we don't usually use the word shame as it's being used here. Uh, the way that many of the other English Bibles have chosen to translate this is clearer and closer to the intended meaning where when they translate it as hope does not disappoint us or hope will not lead to disappointment. That's more the idea of what Paul is saying here, why will our hope not be disappointed? Because, it says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How do we know that our hope is not in some baseless fantasy that we have taken hold of? Because of God's love for us. 
And how do we know that God loves us? Well, first, it says here, the Holy Spirit is given to the believer and he pours out the love of God into our heart. The experiencing of this is a subjective thing, for sure. But every believer knows this to be true. The love of God touches our heart in an undeniable way when we open our life to him and put our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the intensity of that experience will vary from person to person, and it will ebb and flow in our individual lives over time. But I have never, never met a real believer who has not known this love of God poured into their heart through the Holy Spirit. God himself dwells in the believer in the person of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit in us is felt most through the love of God that he pours into us. Paul also gives us an objective way of knowing God loves us in the next verses. In verse 6, he says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We can know God loves us because Jesus Christ died for us. Even if our feelings and circumstances seem to be saying otherwise, causing us to wonder, to doubt, to question, we can know that God loves us because His Son, Jesus Christ, died for us. That is an objective reality. Consider what God has done for us. While we were powerless, helpless, unable to do anything for ourselves about our situation, judged, condemned, and lost, Christ died for the ungodly. On a rare occasion, someone might be willing to die for a good person, someone worthy of being rescued, We've all heard stories of people who have sacrificed their lives for another for some noble cause. But God has proved his love for us by Christ dying for us while we were awful, undeserving, ungodly, rebellious, hostile, resentful enemies who had pushed God out of our lives and wanted nothing to do with him. And so we can know with absolute certainty that God loves us because, one, Jesus Christ has died for us, and two, the Holy Spirit has been given to us who has poured the love of God into our hearts. And so, verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 
Paul shows now that we can be certain of our salvation. Our salvation is not something that is going to be taken away from us. Our salvation is not something that we are going to lose because of a relapse in our life. If Jesus willingly died for us while we were the very enemies of God, how much more will God continue to save us now that we are on friendly terms with him as his children? And if Jesus achieved our salvation through his death, how much more will he continue to save us now that he is alive interceding for us forever. John Stott writes, Here then is the logic. If God has already done the difficult thing, can we not trust him to do the comparatively simple thing of completing the task? If God has accomplished our justification at the cost of Christ's blood, much more will he save his justified people from his final wrath. Again, if he reconciled us to himself when we were his enemies, much more will he finish our salvation now that we are his reconciled friends. These are the grounds on which we dare to affirm that we shall be saved. After having looked at this passage in Romans 5 today, I would like to have us read together this familiar passage in Romans 8 that will now have a clearer meaning as you recognize the truths in it, hopefully in a clearer way. Romans 8.31, which we will look at again in a few weeks when we get there in our study of Romans. But Paul writes this, he says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. I want you to think about that this week. Let's close in prayer.
Father, we thank you for the hope that we can have, that we do have, and what you have done for us, what you are doing for us, and what you will do for us, Lord, that we are your children, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, and we can be certain that we are saved now and forever by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.